Welcome back to Warriors Den episode 54. Now this episode is a blog post series. In particular, the series about policing. Uh, it was initially brought on by the uh, death of uh, George Floyd with uh, Derek Chauvin. Probably saying the name wrong. Uh, so, if you missed the blog post, it's a five-part series just about policing, use of force, training, etc. So, we'll go through each of them as they were written and additional commentary. But first, this episode is brought to you by UTKMU. www.utkmu.com It is our online training uh, website. If you don't live with us, near us... I mean, of course, you don't live with us, right? If you live in, don't live in Metro Vancouver area and are interested in seeing how we teach what we teach, uh, curriculum is up there. White belt, novice, yellow and orange, and uh, the advance is being sorted out for now, so it's only accessible to our current students, but it'll be there in the future. And you can basically learn as we teach here, and you can get the idea of our training methodology, ideology, etc., a lot more theory-based than you might be used to. But of course, the techniques are there. And, you know, the more support we get, the more time I can spend on it. Otherwise, I have to do other work. So if you'd like a lot more content, I'd love to provide it for you. But it requires me not to have to do other things. So support us. The more the merrier and the easier it is for me to give you the content you probably don't know you want yet but do so that's utkmu.com also you can check us out locally urbantacticscam.com for our basic website or on facebook which is actually a good place to follow us in general urban tactics Krav Maga. please like and share and of course on uh, our instagram urban tactics Krav Maga, and twitter urban tactics cam twitter though just rehashes everything because it's such a toxic thing twitter but anyways, um, I will move on to the next section, the intro, and then the first of the podcast. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Warriors Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. Okay, so the first post is, it's not so black and white, right? Because it was being turned into a race war, um, and that's a form of division, right? If you make it uh, a race war, it's a problem, and it will get divide, and it'll get clicks, and it'll get attention, and it'll get rage, and it'll get all sorts of stuff. So the first one is just about, things are never black and white, so stop. So here's the listen, it's not always so black and white. It is not always so black and white. Once again, another major event has occurred that has caused global issues. I'll be more centered in North America. Yes, I am referring to the death of George Floyd by Officer Derek Chauvin, or former officer, which has sparked mass protests, both violent and peaceful. These pr protests, by the way, are clearly in violation of COVID restrictions, something that it seems people have already forgotten. 
A month ago, protests were seen as disgraceful and disrespectful, but now it seems such gatherings are justifiable because the cause is just. Because, of course, this is black and white issue, right? Wrong. The attitude that allowed former officer Chauvin to stay on the force is the attitude that is going on now. The fact that laws, standards, and morals are almost never applied equally and justifications for one thing over another will always shift to suit your beliefs or that of the general narrative that you support. The real problem is that consistently and without fail, standards and rules are never applied equally, not just in the government, but also in your own world views. Example. You took a stance that anyone violating lockdown was selfish and foolish, but you now believe that it is okay to gather en masse and protest the death of George Floyd. This indicates that you're okay with mass gatherings only if you agree with the cause. This is a failure to apply a belief equally. It was not okay for the governments to destroy businesses via lockdown, and it was not okay for George Floyd to die in such a manner. In both cases, injustice was done, but your stance changed because of your belief system. Let me take a step back for a second and talk about the event in question. First of all, let me be clear. What happened to George Floyd was a disgrace and unacceptable. The officer had numerous complaints related to similar behaviors over the years and should never have been allowed to continue on the force. The failure of the law enforcement agencies to apply the law equally to themselves is the problem here. Just like when politicians break the law and are not held accountable. This is the underlying problem and has less to do with black and white than it does with a flawed system. Why do I say that? Well, it's simple. There were other officers present who were not white, yet they did nothing. This is probably because of what psychology calls in-group favoritism or in-group out-group bias. Meaning that though the officers may see something wrong, most will do or say nothing because they want to protect their group, the police, and not the outsider, the suspect. Additionally, there are cases in which black police officers abuse their power, yet you don't hear much about it. A recent example can be found here, click link. A little research will actually turn up many more cases, albeit this example in the link did not end up nearly as badly. But in our modern culture, if you don't hear about it, it doesn't exist, right? Side note, as someone who teaches use of force, the knee on the neck is a perfectly legitimate and necessary technique to control those who are resisting. George Floyd was not resisting, so it was not the appropriate technique. If you do use it, it should only be for short periods of time to elicit compliance. It must be used appropriately and requires appropriate training. It is, in my opinion, a very necessary technique. Unfortunately, due to lack of training and general dislike of the technique due to misconceptions, it is often not allowed and even where it may be appropriate. With training, this technique can be applied with control. In fact, I had to use this at a party once, after several drinks, to subdue a, someone for a lengthy period of time. Of course, I controlled my pressure appropriately, and even after 20 minutes, the would-be aggressor was fine. If I am able to safely employ that technique for a long duration while intoxicated, how is it so many police officers fail to? That is the question you should ask yourself. So let's address the issue of the bad apples. In the police or military, there are always individuals who met the entry requirements, but who should not be there. Yet they are often allowed to stay. In-group favoritism is certainly one aspect, 
but it may actually be something more simple. To explain, I will tell another one of my stories. Yay! When I was in the military, my infantry unit was tasked with arresting a high-profile target known for weapon smuggling. He was notorious for running to evade capture. The target was so high-profile that special forces were supposed to pick him up, yet they were only, we were the only available unit. After briefing and prepping, we ended up waiting hours and hours and hours to get the command to go. We ended up going at 2 or 3 in the morning after a day of prepping. This meant we were all exhausted. We did arrest the target without resistance, and he was placed in the, our armored car. As per the idea of prisoner transport procedures, he was handcuffed and blindfolded. At some point, a fellow soldier whom I, I had great distaste for began to strike our helpless captive. I told him to stop, and it got quite heated. This individual saw no problem with his actions, but I did. Most other soldiers were passed out from exhaustion, including some, some of the commanders in the front. The commotion of our argument led to the commanding officer telling the individual he must stop as his actions were unacceptable. The soldier in question was kicked out of combat. Three months later, I heard that he was being let back in. I then went to the battalion commander and protested his reinstatement. I was told that he was being let back in because they were short-staffed and needed more soldiers. This is the crux of the problem in the military and the police. There are never enough people or resources to keep the good ones in. So whose fault is this? Why, the public, of course. In North America, first responders are often the first to have their funding cut. This includes paramedics and firefighters or other frontline workers. As a result, they are often undertrained and poorly paid. We all know it, yet no one does anything about it. Politicians continue to cut training, overwork them, and allow the shitheads to stay simply because they need bodies. While I'm not an expert in U.S. policing, I can say that without a doubt, the standards of U.S. policing in many counties and cities is not great. One of the reasons could be they don't want capable people in the police, as suggested by a court ruling saying you can actually be too smart to be a police officer. Click on the link. This is common, as they want people who don't rock the boat. In addition, it is common to see out-of-shape or fat officers, something which I think should not be allowed whatsoever. In Canada, while our standards are much better, the standards of training is also quite shameful. I have talked to many officers who say they do not feel they are properly trained in use of force or even shooting tactics. They are often required to train in their free time and pay out of pocket to do so. Furthermore, many feel that learning something not approved by the force will get them in trouble, even if they recognize that the techniques and tactics being taught on the force are out of date. So how do we fix the problem? Simple. Demand from our politicians that they stop overworking first responders, stop underpaying them, and train them properly. But with the condition that they maintain high standards in order to attract only the best applicants. With that being said, most officers are good people and can be seen in many cases in the U.S. where the police chose to kneel or peacefully interact with protesters, which shows that perhaps the belief that all police are bad is wrong and rather that the system they operate is deeply flawed and is being run by those who are more politician than expert on good policing. As this is one of the biggest problems with policing, I find it difficult to say it is simply a matter of black versus white. Why do I say that? 
In general, there are more non-black deaths by policing than black, and it often involves black, white, Asian, or Hispanic officers. An example can be shown in these stats breaking down police shootings by race for the last few years in America. Click on the link. This is, of course, does not include the deaths as a result of unarmed force, but it is likely those numbers would show something similar. Would it not stand to reason, then, that the biggest issue is not race, but poor training, poor support, and the continued allowance by politicians and justices to keep the shithead police on the force? Recognizing that officers involved in the death of George Floyd was likely a racist, as indicated by his history of complaints, to then assert that all death by cop is due to racism is a stretch. Additionally, if you would like to pretend that the majority of violent crimes are not committed by the same groups of people in any given country, then you are not being truthful. Unfortunately, in America, a large percentage of violent crimes are committed in by the black community, just as in Canada, they are committed in by the native communities. These are, of course, a very unfortunate realities, often resulting from the lower socioeconomic status and poor education, which as fellow humans, we should seek to rectify. Reminder, these are complex issues. If you think addressing the problem at all is itself racist, then I am not sure you are someone who actually wants to solve the problems. Rather, you want to virtue signal to make yourself look good to the internet mobs. If you are not sure what I mean by addressing the issue meaningfully, I suggest you listen to the recent Joe Rogan podcast with Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart, being one of America's most successful black entertainers today and someone worthy of great admiration and respect. To paraphrase Kevin... In an attempt to help black communities, he partnered with J.P. Morgan Chase to help educate black communities in financial literacy, which is a fantastic idea. It is actually a step towards solving a systematic problem. Rather than pretending that it's all the white man's fault, Kevin Hart is offering up a meaningful and realistic solution. So let's talk about the violent protests. I am sorry, but this kind of violence and destruction is unacceptable, no matter your stance. The reason is simple. Destroying your own communities, your neighbors' businesses, and generally upending everything around you is not a healthy use of anger, and will only harm you and your community in the process. I do fully acknowledge that there are many bad actors at play, from Antifa to gangs to, yes, actual racists looking to incite violence. These groups should face the full wrath of the law, just as the four officers involved in the death of George Floyd should. It is disgraceful when people who are looking to cause mayhem and destruction detract from a just cause. If you are sitting here as a white person saying it is justifiable, then why are so many black leaders or successful people who are not being political in general calling out for peaceful resolution? Examples, look at MMA fighter John Jones taking away spray cans from teens. Click on link. Listen to rapper activist Killer Mike of Run Run the Jewels saying, don't burn your own house down for the anger with the enemy. Click on link. Read about Lil Wayne saying to stop blaming all police outright. Click on link. Take the now famous photo of several black protesters uh, protecting a police officer who was separated from his unit in the middle of a riot. By the way, these people are heroes. See image. Another issue I would like to address is the idea of white guilt. Personally, I don't understand it. 
If you did nothing wrong, why are you feeling guilty? I mean, as per my above statement, the only thing you did wrong is to allow politicians to run subpar police forces. Yelling about it without solutions is not a solution to the problem. How about another story? A while ago, I took a psychology of genocide course as part of my degree. We had several Holocaust survivors come in to speak with the class. A question was asked about forgiveness of the Germans of today. For me, as a Jew, the answer given was one I'd heard before. There is nothing to forgive. What the speaker actually means by this is that the grandchildren of the Nazis didn't do anything wrong. So why should anyone forgive someone for something they did not do? The class seemed to interpret this as, wow, these people are so empathetic and forgiving. The truth is, in most cases, they definitely would not forgive the individual who were the Nazis who tortured them. Contrasting this with the Rwandan genocide survivor who also spoke, who was less forgiving, because many of the people who committed the atrocities were still alive. Do you see the difference? The idea that you need forgiveness for something you did not do is a waste of your emotional energy. Instead, why not put the same energy into making the police better and increase education in the communities like Kevin Hart is? Because I am sorry, feeling guilty and saying it's okay for entire communities to destroy themselves is shameful and not a real answer. Okay, so if I have not offended you to this point and you have stopped reading or listening long ago, I hope that I have given you several ideas to consider. The simple fact is that there, things are never black and white. Yes, there are racists out there. And no, white people are not the only racists, so stop with that nonsense. But here's the deal. Whether you're a liberal or conservative Canada, Democrat or Republican US, the fact is, whether you realize it or not, everyone agrees one way or another that the status quo system isn't working. Rather than stoking violence and hate, why not educate yourself on how things actually work or what actually happened before jumping on the social media mobs? Actually attempt to make a difference through a vote that results in policy shift. Police need better training. The standards of officers must be higher so that these types of incidents never happen. And some communities need help with education and poverty, allowing them to lift up their people so that the problems are solved at their source. If we make it about race, these issues will not be addressed and problems will not be solved because hate and frustration will drive the conversation instead of desire for change. So I ask, are you going to do something meaningful or are you just going to rage tweet, post, rage smash and hate? P.S. Can you see now that the mainstream media is only interested in spreading hate and violence? They are no longer here to bring you the news, but to entice you to click and comment paying their bills so they can continue this vicious cycle. See Killer Mike above telling CNN that karma's a mother. Written by Jonathan Fader. Edited by Corey Owens. Oh yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. So one thing to understand is that we are lazy as humans and we are not going to look into multiple sources. Often we only all want to listen to sources uh, that we like. Now, a good example of this nonsense is if you are left of ideology politically, let's just say, and you don't like Ben Shapiro, if you don't know who Ben Shapiro is, he is a uh, right of center uh, podcast host. It's got one of the most popular shows out there, actually. Now, if you've never listened to the guy and you say he's a Nazi, well, then you don't seem to realize he's also a religious Jew. (laughs) 
who keeps Kashrut and everything. Um, so if you don't, if you listen to his arguments and you're like, listen, I don't really agree with them, that's very different than saying, I'm not listening to him. He's a Nazi. That means you are actually just listening to the surface of people you agree with. Really, things are not so black and white because they're not. You have to understand the media has an agenda. They are also a business. They also have political affiliations. Now, you can listen to watch whatever media you want, but you also need to understand their political leanings, their spins, right? If you don't understand these things, things are going to be seem so black and white because they're your, your argument is what you were just told and you don't really care what the other counter argument is and it doesn't matter and now it's black and white as I'm on the white the good side and they're on the black the bad side and blah 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 blah, blah. or if you want to call it whatever switcheroo you want there the concept is what matters uh, right so this idea that it was just police versus not police is, is insane um, the reality is crime has spiked everywhere that they have uh, reduced police funding or police are just not able to keep up or deal with all the craziness. You can Google it. It's not hard to find on multiple news sources. If you choose to pretend like defunding the police and removing the ability of police to do their jobs isn't going to directly increase crime. Now, you'd think it actually, you can make the argument, oh, the police aren't uh, going after as much. Crime should go down because after all, isn't a lot of crime uh, like paper crime or uh, like drug related, like low level drug related crimes such as marijuana possession, which again, I don't think should be a crime. Um, And that will be a big step in the right direction if they legalize drugs properly. And if you're a conservative who still says drugs are bad, don't do drugs. Okay, guess what you're doing? You're making it black and white and you are not being reasonable because the research consistently says differently. It's not so black and white when it comes to drug use. And also stop being such an asshole Puritan. Sorry, you can do whatever you want. But don't force it on others. Just like you don't want, if you're right wing, I don't like drugs. But then you tell the left wing, don't force it on me. You're doing the same damn bullshit with your drugs should be banned outright. Sorry, no, they shouldn't. You're probably doing drugs and just don't even know it. By the way, if you're taking prescription drugs, that counts. See, tangent. But his point is, it's not so black and white. And if you still believe after, by the way, this original post, you know, was put up uh, June 2nd. Right. So a little while after the initial uh, incident. But these are, this is a sort of analysis after the fact that uh, things have more stuff has come out than you realize. Um, for example, um, it came out that Derek Chauvin actually knew George Floyd and they had worked together and they didn't like each other. Right. That's an example of it's not so black. Right. So now if you say, um, again, I'm not an expert on American legals, just from what I've heard and looked into a little bit. Right. If you say he deserves the death penalty. Well, here you have to understand, is it first degree, second, whatever? You know, if you charge him with aggravated assault, that's going to stick for sure. And he can get jail time. If you try to go first degree murder, I don't think that would stick because uh, you're just saying your feelings. He deserves to die. He killed someone. Well, I don't know if it was intentional in the moment. However, to say it shouldn't be just assault, you can make the argument because they knew each other and there was bad blood. You could say that perhaps you could escalate it because there's some past issues kicking in, making it worse. Then on the other side, there was the full video released, which showed 
uh, George Floyd saying, I can't breathe before anything even happened. And there was clearly some shenanigans going on. Right. So that's the thing about it's not so black and white. If you just watch a video, but you don't actually see the beginning as in police aren't even there yet to there. The entire video until the death. You don't actually know the entire story. This is exceptionally common. People don't actually look into the entire story. They see a clip that's edited for effect, as in we only want to show one section or the other, and it creates a problem. Now, who knows what's going to happen with this case in, uh, that set it all off, um, because the court trial has to go through. Now, if you're on the side that all police are innocent, you might lean to say you want him off. Although, to be honest, most people think he's a dickhead, so Derek Chauvin, that is, and he's probably going to get some jail time. Now, if you are on the other side who hate the police, which I think you need to change your attitude, but whatever, um, the realization that he might not get life in jail is also a possibility, and that's simply to do with the legal system. If he gets any jail time, that's a good thing, probably. But if he gets no jail time, you have to look at the facts of the case. This is, And the thing is that most of the public think he's not great. So whether he's going to get a, quote, fair trial or not is, is up to debate. So we'll see. It depends. The point I'm blathering on about is that, again, nothing ever is black and white. Who stands to gain? You know, uh, funnily enough, Rush Hour 2, you know, Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker... Um, is it Chris Tucker? Yeah. He says, follow the rich white man because it's always that guy. Well, nowadays it's not just wealthy white people anymore, but it's, you know, billionaires everywhere. Follow the wealth. Who stands to gain the most? Now, I'm not getting conspiracy theory. This is not a conspiracy theory. I don't think this is like some shenanigans. It's going out of their ways to do it. It's more that things happen, people react, and then they utilize it to gain on top. A controversial topic for the news media, any news media, left or right, will be a money generator, especially with misleading headlines that are exceptionally misleading. Um, I just actually read, this was in Canada, I believe, it was a a judge voted uh, was on his statement when convicting a criminal who used an illegal firearm said... Uh, the use of illegal firearms is disgusting and a plague on society. And of course, the media in Canada took out the word illegal and just said, judge says firearms are, a, you know, whatever on society, which is exceptionally misleading. So stop just reading titles, read the damn articles. Often at the bottom, you will find like little things that like, here's the facts just so they're not liable. So, for example, I was just uh, in Canada again. I was watching a video about a young gentleman in Metro Vancouver who got COVID. He's an MMA and martial artist, jiu-jitsu, etc. And the way the media cut the video made it seem like, see, they're trying to push the narrative that young people are guilt are, can get COVID and die of COVID too, and it can be problematic, which is true. Okay, that is true. But in the words of the document that just below the video, it says he had type 2 diabetes. That's an underlying health concern. And then also part of the video, which I apparently couldn't find now, he also said why he was having trouble breathing after the fact was the fact that he was put on a, a, a ventilator and it bruised him and, and did damage. And that's why he was having troubles now. But if you just sort of saw a clip and saw, oh, I see young people can get it too. Yes, but whenever you look into these stories, if they're having severe issues, there's usually an underlying health cause. Again, there could be one or two people. 
So again, stop just with this generic misleading crap. I, they're pushing a narrative, the government, because they're trying to control something, but it's not being honest, okay? It's fear-mongering. Yes, young people can get it. But if you're young, healthy, no underlying health conditions, you're probably fine. And they're just completely trying to cover up the fact that they're full of shit a little bit. Again, social distance, wear a mask, wear appropriate. I'm not saying anything to the contrary. Don't be an idiot, right? But you have to have objective truths. So I'm again, COVID's a little off topic in the sense that the series is about policing, but the underlying reality is not so black and white. You need to think critically for yourself. And a lot of the time it's hard for people because they don't have the underlying knowledge to know what to look for. That's where you need to start. That's why it's a good thing to say, if you don't know anything about the topic, then go do some research first. Look into things. Um, A lot, you know, this topic Israel comes up with a lot of people. They just believe whatever they've been told. And then you're like, here's all the facts. Now, if they're really horrible, they'll just say, that's your facts. Go fuck yourself. Um, Which in which case, fuck that person, to be honest. Um, But if I've had situations where they just genuinely didn't know anything about Israel and then you start to inform them the history, a little bit of the details, you know, Palestine, the origin of the word Palestine actually was an insult from the Romans when they took over Judea and Samaria, you know, like 70 AD, 80 AD. um, And then that's when it stuck. It was originally from the biblical enemy, the Philistines, who are actually in modern day Gaza, not in Judea and Samaria. Right. And a lot of people don't know the origin when, you know, World War Two is a uh, World War One was over, for example, uh, and, the, and the collapse of the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which had control of the region for like 600 something years. And then the British again just said, let's just call it the mandate of Palestine. But at that time, a Palestinian was Jews, Christians, uh, Arabs, Muslims, whatever, who lived there. And then in 1948, got politicized to they're the Palestinians, the Jews or the Israelis, whatever. Right. You see how that works. If you don't know that history, when you hear the term uh, Palestine, it's extremely loaded. And yet it's been used manipulation, manipulatively. Right. No matter what the topic is, you can say there's been it's not black and white. So stop making things black and white. Things change evidence. That's why often nowadays when things come out, I kind of just chill, sit on it for a week or two and wait to see what comes out, because often the misleading information has been leaked. You form your opinions, but it's too late and the media knows they're doing that. So you as an individual need to realize it's not so black and white. So anyways, I think that's enough of a rant on that topic. So the next one is understanding use of force. Right. So let's go through this as a generic topic first, as listed in the blog post. Understanding use of force. The other week, I wrote about the recent police incident resulting in the death of George Floyd in the post titled, It's Not So Black and White. Click on link to access. As this has become such a large and complicated topic with factors such as dissidents, police activism, misinformation, and the media all blurring the facts, I thought I would expand on a few aspects of policing and its complex, often intricate nature. Perhaps you have never heard of these concepts, or perhaps you don't care. But if you have an open mind, you will at least attempt to understand both sides of any argument. For most of the world's population, fighting may be a daily reality, or even a way of life. Though for many others, it is the stuff of nightmares. Now imagine being in a job where at any point you can 
you may have to literally fight for your life. This is for the often the case of people in law enforcement. Now, imagine being under a constant microscope, whether right or wrong, and having to deal with one of the most complicated situations any officer may ever have to deal with, the appropriate application of force in any given situation. To clarify, again, in the George Floyd case, the use of force was not appropriate. Before I move a look forward, let's take a look at this use of force chart. A complicated mess of things of decision-making processes. See blog post. This is an old use of force chart I made. One of the regular comments I receive from viewers is, this is too complicated. My response is always correct. It is complicated, and that demonstrates the complexity of the decisions and processes that need to go through a person's brain when making a use of force decision. Add to that the pressure from the awareness that if you screw up, you could lose your job or worse, your life. Then add pressure of onlookers criticizing you, screaming at you, and filming you. Then add to the fact that you may not have received the training you felt you needed or not enough of it. There could also be further considerations that are not immediately obvious. It is the person on drugs. Are they having a massive adrenaline boost? Are they bigger, stronger, and faster than you? Forget being in a fist fight. Have you ever been in a wrestling match with someone? Do you remember how difficult it was to think and act with someone's entire body weight against you? Believe it or not, trying to move another human being who does not want to be moved or comply at all is very difficult. It doesn't really matter what your belief system is because this is simply a fact. In one example, this police activist found out how difficult it can be. Click on link. It doesn't matter the source of the simulation. As done properly, the results would be the same. It will always be harder than you thought. It is the hope of every officer, be they police, security, or military, that when an arrest is required, verbal commands are enough to elicit compliance. Unfortunately, as you know, this does not always happen. Even with training, it can still be difficult. Police generally do not get enough, a topic I will discuss in another post. One thing Kramagar realized is that when it comes to violent people, you must use violence to prevent harm to yourself or others. You can use your words all you want, but if someone is coming after you, then you are going to have to apply force appropriate to the situation. Words do not always work. And whether you want to or not, you will find yourself in a complicated situation where even the slightest mistake can get you fired, suspended, or dead. What about those who didn't resist violently? Well, you are correct. In those cases, use of force would not be warranted. A lighter touch is certainly needed when the situation allows for it. But let's say someone is just being difficult when putting on the handcuffs on. And despite multiple verbal commands to comply, they choose not to then a slightly higher use of force is needed. Prior to the recent protests, many people believe, usually on the left, politically, that the only people who should have permission for the use of force is the government and its agencies, the police, FBI, etc. If this is the case, if you believe this, then you must admit you know very well that you should comply with the police when necessary. Yes, there are bad apples out there, as the internet has shown. And these should all be removed from duty completely and immediately. 
But for the rest of them, they will never know if any given person is going to comply or not. If the answer is not, then given the authority granted to police by you, the citizen, then you must understand use of force is warranted in eliciting compliance. Enter the complicated decision tree in the graph above. The situation will go well or not depending on your experience, skill, and training. On a good day, the officer involved possesses all three. On a bad day, maybe only one. Let's add in one more complicated factor, exhaustion. Police often work long shifts that may be physically or mentally demanding. Catch even a well-trained officer with good morals on the day that they are at their limit and even they are capable of making a mistake. The point is, if you have never stepped in a ring, on a mat, or into an octagon, or just done some backyard wrestling, your ability to judge what is appropriate and effective use of force is severely limited. It is hard to wrestle or tackle and control another person. It takes a lot of consistent training. It takes a clear mind and consistent application. At the end of the day, all things considered, it is not so black and white. From moment to moment, the appropriate use of force may change, and decisions need to be made in that moment, whether it was the right or wrong decision in hindsight. Failure to choose an act could be catastrophic. So if you feel it's appropriate to get educated on all of the facts, like trying to understand what it might be like for a black person in America, then I urge you to do the same and get educated on all the facts, including trying to understand how hard policing is and how hard it is to be good at appropriate use of force. Fight the good fight, get educated, expand your horizons, and get out of that echo chamber. In the next series of this series, we will discuss police training. Written by... Jonathan Fader. Audio by Jonathan Fader. Okay. Hope you enjoyed that. Right, that was originally posted on June 9th, 2020. And of course, the the use of force chart I created many years ago, if you saw the blog post, it's just confusing. Like, how do I make a decision? And it's just really confusing. A lot of people have said it's confusing and it's supposed to be like that. So if you haven't got that, that's how hard it is to make a decision now funny story every few years um i see this article going around that says the average male overestimates their ability to fight by four thousand percent and that is probably true right uh use of force if you're sitting at a keyboard is not something you can really understand. You need to physically wrestle with people. You need to get hit in the face in a controlled environment. You need to feel your power against someone else. You need to know athleticism, right? Now, I for, let's take Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for example, which I think all police should learn, right? Uh, I was actually having a discussion with someone about who should learn what. And if you're a police officer and have to pick between martial arts, you want to do a grappling-based style because guess what? You can't punch people as a police officer. Uh, I mean, you can. There are legal allowances within a lot of forces, but let's be realistic. That's not the way things are going anymore. And it's going to be worse and worse for you if you get caught on video punching someone, even if they deserve it. So you counter this by learning to grapple, right? Wrestling, uh, jujitsu, judo is usually what I recommend, right? Now, let's take that for example. Now, I'm a purple belt at this point that I'm recording this. Uh, brown belt, who knows, in the next year or two, maybe. I'm not in a rush. Don't really care. Um, and 
There are students who come in once a while, and they're young, they're athletic, and they're naturally gifted. And as soon as I start to grapple with them, I can feel, oh, I may have been doing this longer than them, but they're stronger, faster, and more ambitious than me. And if I don't recognize that really quick and change how I'm doing things, I'm going to get caught. It's happened once or twice. You know, you just a brand new white belt that I didn't sit there and assess. And they caught me because I'm just not there that day and they're faster, stronger than me. And I didn't recognize that. Now, if you're a police officer and you don't know how to assess, oh, crap, this person is going to outpace me and you can't, don't know how to adjust accordingly, you're screwed. Right. Um, uh, the Atlanta case where the Wendy's situation, there was a case where guy was drunk as shit in the Wendy's drive through. They tried to get him go, couldn't go, call the cops. It was all nice and peaceful, all nice and good. And as soon as they're about to put the handcuffs on, he starts punching, kicking, moving. And actually, that was a more justified use of force. Of course, it got political real fast and the shenanigans ensued because he got shot in the back after grabbing his taser and all this. But if you know use of force and you're understanding these cops had better training, it wouldn't have happened because there was a moment where they were losing control that they could have quickly reasserted control had they had better grappling skills. But they did not. And it resulted in the death of uh, the individual, which, again, I think that was a clean kill. I had a discussion with someone in Canada who said they didn't think it was because the guy was running away, um, but he was running and shooting a taser at the same time. So it's a very subjective is but i think reasonably given the circumstances adrenaline was it a great situation no i think it was acceptable and the guy should not have lost his job it actually resulted in a lot of the police force walking off the job after that because they just were pissed off at the da and um point is that could have been avoided with better training which i'll actually talk about uh later training is that use of force or abusive force, I should say, is the lack of controlled force. And controlled force comes through training. So all you assholes screaming defund the police, what you should be saying is let's take a look at their budgets and let's get them training. Two areas a lot more. Well, three. One, they need de-escalation tactics. Although in the, in the in Wendy's situation in Atlanta, that was actually was being quite civil, the police officer. So stop saying otherwise. Um De-escalation tactics, extremely important. Cultural awareness, extremely important. They need a lot more training on that. It needs to be quite regular. And it needs to not be sanitized bullshit that you usually get because people are scared of political correct, so they sanitize it to make it basically useless. Then they also need regular, consistent grappling and arrest tactics trainings on a weekly basis. And then, of course, they need to shoot a lot more, right? But as far as tactical training and learning. Because to me, pulling the firearm out should mean one thing and one thing only, you're going to use it. If you're not about to use it, then you shouldn't pull it out, right? And that's just my opinion. Um, You can make the argument that it can be used as an intimidation, which could therefore de-escalate, but not always. So it can actually go both ways. It's very complicated. It's not black and white, right? But use of force is hard. If you don't grapple, you don't be, you don't like violence, you don't understand violence, then shut up. You don't understand use of force, period. 
and it's going to be hard for you to make correct decisions or advise politicians or advise anyone or yell and scream to help get correct changes that need to happen if you don't even underuse the force, right? You see all the time these big, strong guys walk into a grappling gym and get destroyed because they think strength is what matters. Size does matter, but strength in its own is not enough, right? You need to understand what are you capable of? What's the limits of what you can deal with by yourself and in the application that you need to apply it for, right? It's not so simple. So it's just a basic ideology behind that. So let's take a look at the next one, which is continuing on use of force. So it's use of force, neon neck, and chokeholds. Understanding use of force. Why police need neon neck and chokeholds. Written by Jonathan Fader. Audio by Jonathan Fader. So this is the third part in a series starting with It's Not So Black and White on the topic of police brutality training and various misconceptions thereof. There's a photo of someone getting choked out. See the post. In last week's post, Just Understanding Use of Force, I discussed the difficult nature of applying use of force concepts and making the correct decision in the smallest amount of time while under duress. While yes, there are malicious police, I would say 10 to 20% of these, these are the ones that need to go. And I say that just adding on this bell curve model, there's always going to be the 80-20 rule, give or take, or 10-90 rule. Uh, the rest are simple good people with an extremely difficult job a job where everything you do and say is scrutinized to a level that would drive even the most stable person a little nuts this is why even good officers will often side with their fellow members even the bad ones because of the us versus them principle in the media we once again see calls for removing more justifications for use of force application from the police rather than demanding better training and member selection Slogans like defund the police, though popular on social media, are very misguided and misleading to the point that many top politicians who support the general movement are distancing themselves from them. While people need to understand is that the very loud minority on social media tends to disproportionately drive the conversation causing groupthink to lead the masses into piling on without any real idea of what to do or how to make meaningful change. And by uh, loud minority, I just mean people on social media who are obnoxiously loud constantly about any given issue. Uh, It's not a race thing or anything. Uh, Defund the police is no different than saying, take away their tools. Once upon a time, the police were armed uh, with batons and guns. And many times, the smallest altercation meant extreme violence. They only had limited options. Then they added non-lethal tools like beanbag guns, rubber bullets, mace, and tasers. This was to solve that problem of only having lethal options. Now we even see a trend towards a desire to take away the tools away completely. This is akin to taking away the cat's teeth. As in, again, this is not written, but you wanted them to have non-lethal tools because the only tools they had were lethal. And now you're saying they can't have non-lethal tools then telling them they can't even employ use of force concepts because it isn't nice is like declawing that same cat this idea that 
no force is needed in many altercations is quite frankly delusional. As while there are certainly cases of police overstepping their bounds, most of the altercation resulting in violence are occurring due to extreme resistance. But before I move on, watch this video about why with proper training, something I'll discuss in another post, appropriate controlled force, including neon neck or chokeholds for that matter, is a necessary tool. The video is about uh, 10 minutes, 50 seconds. Watch it for context sake. Uh, bookmark for later if you're just listening. It's very important. Please understand that even if you don't like the technique, neon neck, if you read our previous post, you may start to understand how difficult it is to control another person. As mentioned in this video, he's not resisting too much, mainly because he doesn't want to, because it's not fun. <clears throat> this is why controlled pain compliance is super important. Unless someone is on drugs or has a massive adrenaline spike, most people will cease resisting and comply when you apply the appropriate pressure and give the appropriate commands. No, two or three cops should not uh, pile on putting their knees on the neck, as in the case of um, Robert Chikansky in Vancouver many years ago. One trained individual should apply the technique with others supporting by controlling the arms or legs. I sincerely believe that most people who say the police should not have use of force options have no idea how dangerous the job is. Just because you will not be violent towards police doesn't mean others won't. While there are definitely racial issues at play, by the way, this is on a global scale, so if you're sitting in Europe just pretending like it's uh, the U.S., stop. Uh, when it comes to policing, we should not assume every altercation is about race. If you believe it's systematic, then attempt to understand the issues within the system that make it appear that way to you. Remember... Oops, lost my place. Remember, in a world with conflicting voices, the middle ground is often where you need to be. This means better training and standards for policing, but still allowing them to do the job while staying safe, which includes techniques like neon neck. I have recently seen suggestions that there be unarmed trained individuals available to deal with calls that require a lighter touch, such as social workers, for calls related to nonviolent mental illness. But if you think for a second that their training should not include the use of force, then you are not being realistic about possible escalation. Talk to any ER psych nurse or social worker and ask if they have ever been in a near-violent or violent situation. These are hard jobs where getting attacked is a reality. Some people, for whatever reason, do not care about the consequences and will un be unpredictably violent. This includes towards the police or towards civilian role, which require direct interaction. By removing use of force training and tools, you are actually putting more people in unnecessary danger. And to those of you who have had multiple negative police encounters outside of racial context, because it does happen, you need to ask yourself, why are you having so many bad encounters? If you don't take personal responsibility for your actions, you are not being honest. Because let's be reasonable, most encounters with the police are, by their very nature, negative experiences. As you only usually deal with the police in situations that are not ideal. From paying fines to violent incidents. I have had both positive and negative encounters with police. 
But for me, the most frustrating issue for both me and the police is that often the responding officer cannot get involved because it's not an imminent threat. Even if they agree that something should be done about a person that is violent or problematic, they don't because the system doesn't always allow it. Or they know they can't get a conviction or can't get charged or they'll just get let out depending on where you are. All sorts of reasons. Which means they slowly become jaded and in time there is anytime there is any quote action even the best of police officers get caught up in the moment because they get to finally do something essentially they feel useful and have a purpose this is exactly why we must insist on better training for the police and an understanding that the solution isn't always going to be a move that quote defangs the police now that you have watched the above video i hope you have and you have read these articles there's going to be a few more it is my hope that you understand why techniques like neon neck are important tools they are on average less dangerous than other tools such as rubber bullets and tasers so before you jump on the internet bandwagon and ask yourself do i really understand use of force concepts and where does my hate for the police actually come from what did you do for training Online, visit us at www.utkmu.com or if you're in Metro Vancouver area, come learn from us in person or me at www.urbantactics.com. And this one was a little choppy because I'm blind this morning. So whatever. Okay, so I hope that was enjoyable. Now, you do need to go watch the video. It's about 10 minutes long of me explaining Neon Neck. I think it's a completely necessary technique when done correctly. And it's simple. When you control someone's head and neck, you're controlling their spinal alignment. Where the head goes, the body goes. They can't go. Now, I see some instructors that I actually very much respect say, you don't need it, you don't need it, you don't need it, blah, 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 blah. Here's where they're wrong. They're large or they've been doing martial arts for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. You see the problem there? When somebody is my size or smaller, because there are police officers, women that are smaller, you need the most effective way to control someone that's larger than you that's going to get minimum resistance. And neon neck is an exceptionally important way to do that because you can quite simply control their entire body. They're not going to want to resist too much. And if they do, they're probably on some crazy drugs. So you better get them in handcuffs and controlled fast, which you'll need a second person anyway to do that or a third. The dog pile situations are garbage and should not happen where five, six cops just jump on a person because that definitely is not controlled for us. And learning to use these techniques, learning the transition, right? I think I said in the article that I've done this very intoxicated before at a party a long time ago. Works fine. I was holding it on and off for 20 minutes without an issue. Police came. I got up. No issues. They got arrested. Okay. Simple, right? This idea, this, it's problematic in the use of force community that the big, strong, six-foot-tall guys who've been doing it 30, 40 years and saying this technique works for me, therefore it should work for you. No. The reality is the reality. You control their structure, their spinal alignment, and... Um, their posture and base. Uh, shout out to uh, Rob Bernacki for that kind of analogy of uh, BJJConcepts.net. Um, 
You can control people much bigger than you with minimal effort because you're taking away their strength advantage. You're taking away your strength disadvantage. You are using simple mechanical and biological concepts to control a person effectively. A lot of techniques can kill someone. And the other thing is the chokehold concept that police shouldn't use chokeholds. What the hell is wrong with people? Again, similar with the COVID thing. You look at a lot of people who died of chokeholds. There's serious underlying health issues. Now, it's one problem in America they don't want to address is the obesity. Okay, if you have problems in your respiratory system, maybe it's not diagnosed, though if you're obese, it's kind of obvious. Sorry to say. It's going to cause complications, right? If you are getting choked and you have a heart condition or due to obesity or diabetes, it it can cause problems. But an officer can't possibly know these things. And it's not their responsibility to know these things. If they need to safely control you, putting you unconscious through a chokehold is actually one of the safest ways. What are they going to do? beat you till you're unconscious would you prefer they do that if a person for example is on drugs and the neon neck control is failing and it's getting more violent then you're going to have to render this person unconscious and in that case you know it's not going to work a taser what will work cut off the blood supply to their brain put them asleep wake them up and or choose to put the handcuffs on first and wake them up you can do both both situations would be acceptable depending on the situation but the public say no no chokehold no neon neck no this and that and then it's like well how are we supposed to arrest people well if they're resisting arrest you should just let them go no okay regardless if you agree with the reason why you're being arrested because get yes there are some false cases out there don't resist arrest it's like the most steady advice given by any lawyer any use of force like just don't right and you know what especially in america if you don't resist and they're beating the crap out of you guess what that means that means a good lawsuit win for you now should you be getting beaten unconscious nope absolutely not but in that system just know you're going to reap the benefits right now assuming there's no permanent damage again that's not what police should be doing the fact they do do it means they're either a poorly chosen officer or they are poorly trained right so you have to think about that but again this comes back to the general use of force if you don't understand the use of force why are you telling people at the same time i take the example of covid you're saying screaming listen to the experts listen to the experts listen to the experts but only in that case because it suits your belief system right by the way i said early on wear masks I had a bunch of people yelling at me. The experts said, don't wear a mask. And now, regardless of the efficacy, guess what? Even if they were only 10% efficacy or effective, uh, who cares? That's enough to help curve the thing if, it's a, if you're uh, at risk or in a really crowded area. And what's the problem, right? Again, if a business makes you, which I think they have a right to, then you don't need, then don't, and you don't like it, then don't go to the business. It's free market economics, whatever. But anyways, it's the same concept. Trust the experts. Well, it's like kind of the wars in in Afghanistan and Iraq. Experts were saying we need more boots on the ground. We need to be more communal. We need to do this. Politicians who are not experts saying, nope, nope, nope. Voters don't like it. Nope, nope, nope. Nobody's bothering to inform you that the actual expert, the generals on the ground are saying, listen, we need boots on the ground, not because we want to overwhelm them by force, but because 
because we need to make a communal, person-to-person, real effort to connect with these people. And it was completely ignored by all the politicians, right? The people in charge are not experts anymore. They're supposed to rely on the experts. But when uh, the truth conflicts with the narrative, it causes problems. So the truth is, chokeholds are an effective way to put someone to sleep who's arresting or who's resisting arrest in a reasonably safe manner, much more than a taser or a gunshot, obviously, or kicking their head in. And yet the narrative is don't do it. It's dangerous. Well, why is it dangerous? Usually to do with underlying health conditions. Well, if 40% of America, for example, or something number like that is obese, that's a large voting block. And if we start saying, listen, the problem isn't the chokehold. The problem is too many people are unhealthy. How's that going to look for politicians? That's what I mean by it's not so black and white. It's not the chokehold. It's the issue. It's does the officer have the proper training to do it? And if he doesn't give it to them, don't take it away from them. But at the same time, you need to address the issue that guess what? This is a, a police. This is a health issue just as much as it is, is a use of force issue, right? You got to dig deep sometimes and understand that you've got to listen to the experts, which are a chokehold. Putting someone to sleep is a much better way to handle a situation of noncompliance than a lot of other options out there. A knee on the neck is a much better way to make someone comply, especially if you're much smaller than them, than a lot of the other options out there. What are you going to do? Take the baton and smash their head in like they used to? You, you can't keep telling people to use less lethal force and then take it away from them. They're less lethal force options. It's like insane. And if you don't like the police, I'm sorry. You have to ask, what is it that's going on? It's not just a race thing. If you're constantly having conflicts with police officer, what are you doing? Right. Yes, you can have examples of there being some race issues there in America or in Canada with the natives. But if you were actually doing something that wasn't exactly uh, good, ask yourself, why are you having these issues? Right. I understand some people are just trying to survive. But guess what? You don't actually have the right to steal or attack other people. Law or no law. It doesn't go well. Right. So there's that. So really learn to understand use of force properly so that you can know what techniques should be allowed and should not. Most experts say, fine, let them choke people. But they need the training. Which brings us to the next one. Police training should be better. Police training should be better. This is the fourth in a series that started with It's Not So Black and White, which was expanded in Understanding Use of Force and Understanding Use of Force Neon Neck. Over the course of this series, I have frequently mentioned that the need for better training and standards for policing. Often, when this is discussed with officers, a few responses are common. And of course, I'm paraphrasing. I totally agree, but I don't have the time or money to pay for my own training in my limited free time. I totally agree, but the higher-ups don't seem to care and are not willing to make the change. I don't know what you are talking about. Training in the academy was hard, so you don't know what you are talking about. I know enough. You were just trying to sell me something. Side note on that one, I once had a police officer coming in uh, for a noise complaint that was completely unvalidated. And uh, I said to them, uh, we have a pistol disarm seminar coming up. They said, I don't need to know how to disarm. I can just shoot them. 
This is in Canada, by the way. That is actually not the correct response. Continuing with the actual article. No matter what the reason, whether they agree or disagree, the fact is simple. Police are not trained well enough. Why do I say that? Have you ever heard of the 10,000-hour rule? Popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers, the Story of Success. Great book. It is an estimated that for any one skill as in an individual skill you will need 10,000 hours to gain mastery even a black belt who has been training 5, 10 or 15 years often doesn't even have that kind of level this is the reason why black belts often say when achieving that prestigious rank now I am ready to learn given how long it takes to achieve mastery it is unreasonable to expect this level of expertise from police given the number of skills that they actually need to perform effectively. However, we can reasonably expect them to at least reach a novice or advanced level in both use of force and firearms usage under duress. Additionally, we need to select better candidates. Some places like Canada maintain physical requirements and some do not. Some put in place an age requirement, not too old, not too young. Some do not. Some uphold minimum education requirements and some do not. I will discuss selection more in depth in another article. But we must take into account the fact that the standards vary wildly. Since I've lived in Canada, or I live in Canada because I do. Let's start with the discussion training standards with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, RCMP. Usually you do not need a degree and some or usually you do need a degree and some life experience. Once you have been selected, you will undergo 6 months of training at the RCMP's Academy's Depot Division. The details of which are broken down in the link in the article. The general breakdown of RCMP Depot, as from their website, is Applied Police Sciences, 373 hours. Police Defense Tactics, 75 hours. Fitness and Lifestyle, 45 hours. Firearms Training, 65 hours. Police Driving, 65 hours. Drill Deportment and Tactical, 43. Detachment Scenarios, Exams, and Research, 120 hours. Before I move forward, I will say that the standards of the RCMP in some ways are considerably better than those of many other police forces, especially in the U.S. However, the RCMP selection requirements have declined over the years. Anyways, back to the point. You can see how many scenarios, skills, and concepts they need to cover and attain reasonably proficiency within only six months' time. Some agencies have less. What they considered applied police sciences couldn't itself encapsulate numerous, numerous complicated topics. Let's take a look at police defense tactics, which is allotted 75 hours of class field time. I will assume this is the training of physical self-defense and control techniques. Perhaps there is a crossover with the martial... Material covered in drill department and tactical. Without more detail, it's hard to say. But let's say 75 hours encompasses the fundamentals. That length of instruction, 75 hours, is about the minimum time it takes to become a UTKM yellow belt, for example. The RCMP standard is therefore no more intensive than our civilian self-defense curriculum. And this is in comparison, assumes the RCMP's curriculum is up-to-date, comprehensive. Objectively, most of our yellow belts do not have enough skill to begin safely deal with the violent situations that are inevitable in policing. In most cases, my green belts and up 
are end up are to a point at which students develop true proficiency in hand-to-hand combat and control techniques. That is a minimum of 280 hours specifically in hand-to-hand combat and they continue to train after that fact. Side note, I was listening to a podcast BJJ Mental Models listened to it, the Quam Brothers, and uh, they had a recent guest with uh, from the RCMP. It had been 20 years, also all areas of the RCMP. He summarizes, he thinks, from grappling perspective, at the end of Depot, they might be two-stripe white belts. I'm hesitant to say that, honestly, but it could be true. That's still not not even remotely good enough. He also said that they should achieve blue or purple, at least, which they do not. So there is an agreement, at least, that the training is not sufficient currently. Moving on. After completing depot, RCMP officers usually do not engage in extensive training supplied by their own force. While America is different than Canada, the common lack of training is discussed by Jocko Willink, look him up, during his recent appearance on the Joe Rogan Experience episode 1492 at about around the 17-minute mark. Willink notes the range of training required for the duties of police officers and how, on average, American police officers are, are no longer held to a physical fitness standard and receive only about two to four hours of extra training a year, which is nowhere even close enough to maintain the skill to execute their duties while discretion and control, with discretion and control. While training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I highly encourage for everyone, I have met RCMP officers who are practicing BJJ out of desire to expand upon their training, which had not included a focus on grappling. They became interested in ground fighting skill set through private training sessions run by a fellow officer who had happened to be a BJJ brown belt. This training, however, was done on their own time and on their own dime, and only a handful, like three or four people, of their fellow officers took part. The fact that grappling and ground fighting isn't standard training at this point is beyond me. The Vancouver Police Department VPD at least has a judo club for officers and recruits. So why do not more agencies have wrestling, BJJ, or judo training available to their officers? A side note, I joined that club for a little bit. Um, it was mostly to try and entice recruits. I didn't see too many regular force. Uh, during the open one, maybe they had it on the side and I wasn't aware. Um, but the skill level and training I saw in the open one was uh, not what I would consider where it needs to be personally. A while ago, former U.S. Democratic presidential nominee Andrew Yang, why they didn't make him the party leader, I don't know, whatever, I'm not in that country, suggested a reasonable requirements for police vetting could be a BJJ purple belt. And as we move forward, this is something I increasingly agree with. If Depot is the start of RCMP training, then it should be treated as exactly that, just a start. Officers should, at a minimum, be getting at least one hour a week of hand-to-hand training every week after depot. It should also be paid and delivered within their regular working hours. Jocko, Jocko Willink, suggested a fifth of an officer's time should be spent on training. And I completely agree. So if you work five days, your fifth day is all the training. Uh, RCMP might need to rethink their their uh, current model because I don't really agree with it, but whatever. Now let's look at the RCMP's 
65 hour of firearms training. 65 hours. There is no way that is enough time to become proficient with the range of firearms officers may encounter, especially working mainly with a pistol and especially under duress. In my seven to eight months army training, that's just basic and advanced, by the way. I had much more after that training. I would say the most of my instruction and practice was related to firearms and weapon use in combination over hundreds of hours. That's with movement with other people, individually, under duress, with different scenarios, non-stop. I probably fired tens of thousands of rounds in a variety of scenarios across all platforms I was expected to be proficient in. Fortunately for me, it was not in pistol. Shane said. Anyways, additionally, while I am speculating, I suspect that much of the RCMP firearm training does not place the candidates under reasonable or realistic simulation that would allow them to develop the confidence to use their firearms effectively. I say that because it's my understanding that even our own special forces have to go to America to do proper training because it's frowned upon here, allegedly, just from what I've talked to people. I have heard some agencies in Canada do pay for 10,000 rounds worth of training a year, but with the caveat that the officers need to seek out and undertake this training on their own time. So I expect most officers do not even bother. Many thanks to those who do. Basically, we are asking police to do a good job, be experts in the use of force, maintain an even temperament, develop interpersonal skills, and gain an understanding of the law, but we barely give them any training or time to do so. So far, I have used the RCMP as a major example, as fortunately they have a fairly detailed website on this matter. Let's take a look at the Vancouver Police Department's VPD. Their training program isn't listed in detail, but the basic process is. They undergo almost three months, 11 weeks of academy training at the Justice Institute, JIBC. Then they do approximately six months on the job shadowing, then another three months at the JIBC. I actually kind of like this model as it mimics the apprenticeship model and is something that should be considered for continued development over the course of an officer's career, i.e. you're on duty for six months, you train for three months. You're on. That's very much how the IDF operated, by the way, when I was there. However, with knowing the details of the curriculum, it, without knowing it, it's hard to tell, say how much use of force or firearms training is included. However, the total process is about a year of learning after selection, which is good. But again, how much time is spent on what? By the way, usually a degree or later age is required for the RCMP, whereas VPD may take applicants out of high school, which is more common than not, though someone recently suggested there is a minimum credit requirement prior to application. You can confirm this on your own. I'm not really sure. It would make sense, though. The famous LAPD require applicants to be 21 years of age and the possession of a high school diploma or GED. And once selected, they will go through a six-month course, the details of which I could not find. The NYPD, also internationally known, requires the age of 21, some post-secondary or military service, and residency within the five boroughs of New York, and the completion of a written exam. The NYP does have academy, it seems, offers training to new recruits, civilian roles, and in-service officers, though I cannot track down a specific number of how long the in-class training for prospective police is. The fact it is so hard to find details on the training programs in America specifically indicates a concerning lack of transparency. We should know what they're getting trained in. 
quite frankly. The Minneapolis Police Department, dun, 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 the one under all the scrutiny that started all this bullshit recently anyways, by the way, requires two to four years degree and some psychological assessment and aptitude testing. But again, no specific mention of what actually happens in the academy. Now let's compare these North American programs to German police training. It is difficult to find information in English, but I have talked to several people about German programs. Training is generally the same for all, I'm going to butcher this, Bundesstaatspolizei, federal police, but may vary some degree across 16 Ländischpolizei, state police. Sorry if you're German, not my language. After a degree, they recruit training in two to three years straight before they can be a certified police officer. By the way, in Germany, they have degree programs specifically for those wanting to become police officers. So it is likely that these would be sought in candidates if not required. Again, in Europe or much of the world, such degrees in policing and security are normal. Here in Canada, at least, individuals usually take a general criminology degree, which, while it does deal with crime and the law, it is not actually a degree program specific to policing, as in they're not really getting the, the, the job-specific training they would actually require. They're just getting a general idea of how the system works. They are lucky if they have uh, former police instructors. Many universities do, but not all of them. This is the best approach. Get an education be a little older, and then we will train you extensively in the job, the German model being that, before you start doing it. German officers actually train, uh, training is four to six times longer than the average in North America, specific to their job. It bears mentioning that firearms training provided by German police forces centers first around safe handling and marksmanship, then training to only use a service weapon as a last resort. That's because they're given the skills to make it their last resort. This includes numerous hours of training under duress, under duress to avoid, quote, tunnel vision in order to learn how to manage your reactions and decisions in the real world. If you dig deep, you will find that in much of Europe and other areas of the world, police generally receive considerably better training. Yes, your three or six months in depot may be the hardest time you ever had, but I am here to tell you it is not enough. Get over yourself. (laughs) That part was added in now. It does not even allow you enough time in any one topic to even be considered a skilled novice. Is that really the standard we want? I don't think so. So instead of jumping on the social media bandwagons, demand that the politicians force police to offer better training. In the budget department, they're the ones cutting all this shit, by the way. If the job is harder to get into and pays better, you will attract a better class of officer. But if the job is overworked, underpaid, and poorly trained, why would the average person want to do the job? Not to mention all the hate online. This is so over the top now. The solutions are simple. Better training, more training, and consistent training during your entire career as an officer. So what do you think? Is six months of training enough for the people putting their lives on the line to keep us and our communities safe? I think not. Written by Jonathan Fader, audio by Jonathan Fader. So, how is that? So, police training should be better was on June 23rd, 2020. Now, I did get some responses about police training from people giving me a bit more detail, but uh, 
realistically, the comparison was that, you know, in Germany, it's three-year process after you already have a law enforcement degree. And I think that we, if we want to have better standards for the policing or teaching for that matter, if you want to get paid more and treated better, then also you need to make it harder to do the job, become, the, not do the job, harder to get into the job so that you get a higher class of people that are better trained. Six months is barely enough. You can have some random degree and then you go to a six-month degree uh, uh, program that barely covers everything because you need to know laws, how they work. You need to know physical confrontation, de-escalation. You need to know firearms. You need to know all sorts of stuff. What are the problems in the community, drugs, all this sort of stuff. You're not learning that in six months. That's like an entire four-year degree to effectively learn all that stuff. And we expect police here six months of training and go. You're out of your minds. Right, I looked at the RCMP and some American uh, situations. If you want boots on the ground quicker with police, you can do your six-month intro training, but then you need weekly training. Again, I talk about uh, Jocko Willings on Joe Rogan was saying he thinks one day a week out of five should be training. I agree. Whether it be, hey, we're in the range this week, you know, you could do an hour or two hours of grappling training, arrest training, hour or two hours of uh, of uh, dry fire and live fire drills, um, and an hour or two hour of de-escalation every single week, right? You say that uh, we need more police, but you know what? More effective policing actually requires less officers if they can do the job. Now, don't lower the number of police officers to the point where it's not functional anymore, which governments tend to do to save money, which is also very wrong. But if they are properly trained, they're confident they're not going to need to use lethal force as much as you would see. And, and by the way, the numbers out there lie. Like the amount of actual use of like resulting in death is a lot lower than people realize, but they're just politicized uh, heavily and you don't bother. You don't care about the numbers. It's about the feelings. No, you are either being manipulative or I'm sorry, you're an idiot. Um, you, you do have to be critical of stats and numbers and understand where they're coming from and who's providing them, but ignoring them because you don't like the results outright because it hurts your feelings or shows that what you thought to be untrue. No, that's ridiculous, right? But it still doesn't change the fact police training needs to be better. It needs to be more continuous and it needs to be updated, right? And I'm not a fan of the old boys club. This whole defend bad cops, you know, you're the problem if you're doing that just as bad as they are, right? And an open and honest dialogue is what people have been demanding forever and politicians are just not getting it. Better police training, not less money. Now, luckily in Canada, we've been sort of protected so far, but there have, despite people have being tried to, to, to defund the police. Yeah, you do need social service increases in community stuff, right? That's ground level. I know RCMP in Canada, here we're trying to get it out BC, but a lot of these programs keep getting cut by some dickhead out in Ottawa who doesn't care about here, right? So that's why you need community-oriented policing. And if your legal system, your police force is being managed by someone in another city that doesn't even care, that's a problem, right? That's a problem here. So actually, you know, while I listened to this great podcast, I forgot what, exactly what it was a psychologist talking about, how there needs to be more federal standards in the state, which would be good. Hey, here's a federal standards policing need to adhere to. It's up to the responsibility of the states to meet or exceed. I think that's a much better way than the way Canada does it, where all decisions are made as centralized command in Ottawa, and it's very much problematic. Um, so 
Either way, listen to the experts, not some old guy who's an ex-RCMP who kind of needs a job and then he's not hasn't updated his own training, but he's the guy we know that we have that knows some stuff. That's the way they do it usually, but it's not great, right? So you need updated training, grappling from people who aren't just used to force experts, but actually understand the needs of police. Because I've seen very good use of force experts teaching stuff that isn't so great for police in real world application. Um, so you have to be aware of that. It should be someone who understands use of force and understands police application because a technique that's good in competition might not be good for police application or a technique that you like might not be good for generalized police force, right? It's too too hard to learn, takes too long, etc. Things to consider, right? So in general, yeah, police training should be better. But all aspects, use of force, uh, shooting, and de-escalation. And um, they do need more police so that they can have longer, you know, be allowed to take stress leave without it being an issue. You can you can look into my friend uh, Terrence, Terrence Kosker, Camp My Way, who is dealing with PTSD and, and uh, paramedics and uh, uh, police officers all the time, and it's just nobody seems to give a shit. The politicians don't care because it's too hard to deal with, so they don't want to deal with it, right? Bottom line, all aspects of police training needs to be better. Politicians should not be the ones making decisions on this shit. They can say, hey, here's the budget. And then it should be up to the police chiefs how to spend it. Uh, following certain guidelines, hey, it needs to be spent on this. You know, $100,000 in pens is a waste of money just because you want to keep your damn budget. We could talk about government spending another time. It's a disaster how it functions. Anyways, so the next one is how should we select for police? How should we select for police? This is the fifth in a series that started with It's Not So Black and White, which was expanded upon in Understanding Use of Force. Specifics regarding technique were discussed in Understanding Use of Force Neon Neck, and then we looked at overall police training standards in last week's post, Police Training Should Be Better. Over the course of this series, I have frequently mentioned the need for better training and standards for policing. This will be the last entry in the series of policing of use and force, hypothetically. It is my hope that these posts have given you time and informed information to consider another perspective about police and the job, as well as use of force misconceptions. If your only source of information about the world is mainstream media, it is likely you are getting heavily biased misrepresentation, often with the goal of gaining viewer attention rather than informing us. Or, if you are only getting your information from social media, a place where you may only follow people with similar beliefs and experiences to yours, then you could be living in a bubble, leading you to jump on poorly thought out causes even if your intentions were good. No matter where you are in the world and what bubble you live in, seeking out other opinions and sources on information is key to forming well thought out ideas and policies so i hope this series has opened your mind to a perspective you might not have considered which brings us to the next important topic how do we select for policing if you have followed this series you will have guessed that there is no single standard method of selection 
Some require post-secondary, some do not. Some have age and fitness restrictions, be they high or low. It is likely we will never get it exactly right, but as stated, it can be better. Some ideas this article will be speculative. Others are simply thoughts to further the conversation. Let's start with age. Personally, I think the minimum age for policing should be 25. And to be clarified, that would be after uh, a degree. So if you want to do a degree in policing, then you should do it before 25 and you shouldn't get hired on till you're 25. With no specific high-end limit, so long as individuals can pass all required tests. Why? Simple. The idea that people are adults at 18 or 21 is an arbitrary number. A long time ago puberty or around 16 you were generally considered an adult because you could move to the next stage of life which would be reproduction etc the modern conception of 18 or 21 as the age of majority other than it being after high school or university was based on our social economic systems needs however recent studies have suggested that the human brain does not finishing developing until around age 25 at which point our brain chemistry and and function is stable enough scientifically you know life changes things to be considered an adult phase of the human development but i don't think i need science to tell me that people are over 25 are usually more stable and better at rational decision making which is why it makes sense that 25 should be the minimum age for a career in which decisions and reactions could have lethal consequences why do I think no maximum age? Well, as long as a candidate are physically and mentally capable, why limit the selection? You will also be able to draw upon the expertise and experience from individuals who have lived and done more. Why is it that police organizations prefer younger candidates? The forces that do are likely seeking younger minds that can be molded to fit the existing police culture they want them to adhere to. Even Google does this by hiring people right out of high school. Except when it comes to policing, I really don't want someone who is young and has been conditioned to uphold the quote old boys club or favoring your fellow officers over the law. Hiring older candidates will allow the institutions to ensure that integrity is more likely to be enshrined in the force, both legally and morally, though it's not a guarantee. Next, let's talk about obvious physical requirements. Sometimes physical requirements are accepted. Expected, with tests like Peace Officer Physical Abilities Test, POPAT in Canada, while others have few or no requirements. First off, under no circumstances do I think it is acceptable to allow out-of-shape police officers to serve on the force, let alone as an active street officers. Like shooting and tactics, fitness requirements should be maintained and assessed annually. While I cannot speak for other places, I can say that from what I have heard in Canada, physical standards are often slowly being lowered. This is something I am very much against. The, do the job does not change, but the standards do? That makes no sense and is potentially dangerous. You may need to chase someone for a 100-meter sprint or a 2-kilometer run with your gear on. That's a bad day, by the way. Or you may need to grapple with an opponent to control them during an arrest, which is exhausting enough when you are in shape, let alone out of shape. Additionally, testing should be more realistic than currently is, as tests like the Pulpat don't really prepare you or assess your fieldwork. Rather, it's just generic fitness. There should be 
tiered levels of fitness test requirements, each aimed at ensuring officers can operate for all aspects of their job. This can be done before, during, and regularly after initial training. The, do- the job doesn't change, so why should the standards should change, even if lower standards would allow more people in? I personally don't have an issue with shorter officers or smaller officers, but I do believe anyone with a non-average build must score higher on physical combatives areas, as they are going to have to make up for their size with skill. It's just physics. So again, lowering physical standards for smaller officers is actually more likely to put their lives or the lives of civilians at risk. Regarding combative skills, either through police prep schools or generic martial arts schools, candidates should probably start to have BJJ, wrestling, or judo experience prior to hitting the academy. And just to add in, Kramaga is great, but a lot of policing are very against it, unfortunately. And you can teach it without striking for professional application. So, yeah. Anyways, if, of course, out of high school you want to be a police officer... You could do four years of education related to the job, which is also plenty of time to get considerable martial arts experience, a blue or purple belt in jiu-jitsu, for example. It also shows that the candidates are serious about the job and are ready to get their egos smashed on the mats rather than pursuing the job so they can impose their egos on others. This will further help scream people as there are no better stress tests than having a higher rank, larger individual sit on you even in a fun match with that being said training should just not be something that you put on your resume it should be something you're serious about and plan on continue doing it consistently next is the question of education i like the german model that has police specific degrees such degrees in my opinion should have hand-to-hand combat and physical training aspects to it as well as theory this would pre-screen candidates as well as provide them the training they need well in advance of the actual job, which would save taxpayer money. Even if individuals do not end up becoming police officers, they would walk away with practical lifelong skills, martial arts, awareness, etc. While criminology degrees are good, like in Canada, like many degrees, they are not specific to the job itself and will depend on who is teaching what with regards to how practical the education is. Having a degree is also a screening method to ensure that individuals grow and develop and show that they can work hard prior to acting in the line of duty. These are just a few items that should be in place, but there are other selection practices currently used that I strongly dislike. First is the fact that forces often want Puritan candidates with no bad behavior in their history at all. This I am very much against. How can you possibly understand how a drunk person thinks or feels if you've never been drunk? How are you going to understand the people you need to help if your life has never been exposed you to anything negative? The no-drugs-ever policies that many agencies enforce for pre-selection is, quite frankly, insane, and probably limit good candidates dramatically. Of course, you don't want individuals with a severe history of addiction, but with the amount of alcohol police often drink, I see no difference between that and many categories of drugs. And, clearly, they must be sober on the job. I am not saying drink or do drugs on the job, absolutely not, if that wasn't already obvious. Another notion of selection is the common bias, even if subconscious, to only select individuals who not only fit in, but also those who won't rock the boat. 
This kind of selection bias is the reason why we have so many shitty cops out there, like many jobs, to be fair, because you select for people who will not be honest about the problems they see in the behavior of other officers or the system, even though this is what the public demands, and self-scrutiny that will improve the force overall. I understand the concept of brotherhood, as I was in the military. However, while it may feel like, as an officer, you are going to war every day, it is not. Therefore, this idea of protective brotherhood, I feel, is less important in policing than in the military during wartime. Well, yes, you want someone who you can trust with your life as a partner or in, a, say, a SWAT team. For the sake of the job and your overall safety, you cannot keep protecting bad behavior in the name of brotherhood. It is wrong, full stop. What do you think? These are just a few ideas about how to better select for policing. Many of these changes would require you communicating regularly with your politicians, mayor's office, and others. As the budget and changes are usually greenlit by them and not people who should actually be making the decisions. Everyone knows we need change, and yet it often gets stopped somewhere in the blurry, inefficient mess that is bureaucracy. So if you had your way, how would you select for police? Written by Jonathan Fader. For more training online, visit www.utkmu.com. Or if you're in the Metro Vancouver area, come and learn from us or me in person at www.urbantacticskm.com. Audio by Jonathan Fader. So that one was on June 30th, right? Just discussing how I think that we should select for police. Now, if it wasn't already covered in there and or it's repetitive, you don't want Puritan police, people who have never done anything bad ever, have never been exposed to anything bad, because I think they're going to be the most likely to crack or toe the line with the old boys club, right? Because criminals are bad and that's the end of the story. I do not like that attitude. It's not great. And I know lots of people I respect who just criminals are bad, drugs are bad, etc. You conservative friends, you got to take your heads out of your ass, man. Sorry. Um, and you also don't want, you know, obviously they screen for crazy people now. But now they'll just, yo, you had a history of depression, but it's, you haven't had issues for 10 years. We don't want to deal with you because we don't want that liability. Uh, hey, don't you want someone who knows how to control and manage their emotions effectively because they've been through it already? Discrediting that is silly. Of course, you need to look into it a little bit more, of course, and, and maybe extra checks. But someone who's never had any issues and then develops PTSD on the job and doesn't actually know how to deal with it, that's going to be a more problematic person than someone who has already dealt with it, has, has the coping mechanisms, right? Also, right, uh, someone who is a little older and has life experience, you do want that. But I find now they want younger and younger people because they're easy to mold. I don't think they should be taking people under 25 ever. Yeah, they're easy for you to mold. But no, you want people who can think for themselves a little bit within the confines of the law and the discretion of the job, etc. Because the people who can't and just think it's black and white arbitrarily are not going to be good. And they're going to have the incidents much more than the more experienced person who knows when to let something go or who knows when to actually deal with it or knows when to reach out or knows how to handle things more in depth. Again, it's not black and white. And they're making it as the lawyers are making the decisions. And the politicians are making the decisions. I know lots of great people who were denied police jobs because of silly things. Everyone thinks they'd be great. 
they didn't want them because they didn't fit, which is a problem, right? Or contrast to like, if you're just picking police officers to fit quotas, then you're not actually picking the best people. You need to pick the best people who will do the job the best. doesn't matter uh, their age. I mean, they need to physically be capable if they're older, of course, but and it doesn't matter their ethnic background, but they do need to understand the cultural differences. Like, let's say they'd served in one country, came over here, and they're like, I'm doing it. They do need to understand the cultural differences, can't do it the way they did it in their old country, potentially, right? It's stuff like that. People with experience and the ability to manage their emotions are far more important and are probably better for policing than some young buck out of high school, realistically. You don't want indoctrinated officers. I'm sorry, you don't. And uh, it's a challenge. Of course, it's going to be subjective to country to country what's a preferred preferred thing or not. Um, but you have to see, you know. Um, but the way they're selecting now is either to fill quotas or safe choices that don't always turn out to be safe. Otherwise, you wouldn't see such high rates of PTSD and, you know, bad decisions Again, most police are fine. The amount of interactions that go well versus that don't are actually disproportionately in the side of going well. So again, it's all about the view you have. But in general, yes, if this is an issue that public seems to think, then you need to select better. How you choose to do that is up to you, but there needs to be better selecting because I'm not a fan of the way they're doing it now. So long story short, I hope that this gave you some insight onto policing and decision-making and things that can be improved or not improved or, or whatnot. But I just want you to understand it's not so black and white. No matter what side of the argument you're on, you probably should learn the other side. And you should probably learn from good sources, not your friend Bob. Sources that are legitimate. And I'm not even talking mainstream media. It's garbage nowadays. You need to go direct source. There's lots of people on podcasts, lots of things like that, that you can get direct source information from officers, from use of force experts, from politicians even. That's a better source than the talking heads. That's a better source than the media headline. As long as you understand on any controversial topic that it's not so black and white you will have a much better time making a better personal decision and finding that coveted but rare middle ground thanks for listening to this episode of Warrior's Den you're listening to The Warrior's Den brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions.